people are used to watching television and kind of the CSI effect and everybody wants to see DNA evidence, right? We want to know that this person was at that crime scene based on DNA. Well, DNA is not always around. It's down to digital evidence. Digital evidence is involved in every case from drug trafficking to internet crimes against children to homicide to robbery to burglary. I mean everything. So just a couple days ago when I was at the high tech crime unit, we were assisting on a case that involved a shooting. I mean, again, we think digital evidence has to be cyber crimes. That's not the case. From Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, this is Techies Today, the Purdue Polytechnic podcast. I'm John O. Catherine Siegfried Speller grew up wanting to become a police officer. Today, Kate is indeed a crime fighter, but she does it as an associate professor of computer and information technology. Wanting to understand people and why they do bad things, and wanting to make a difference, Kate earned a bachelor's degree in psychology. In graduate school, Kate studied forensic psychology and then cyber forensics, a branch of digital forensic science pertaining to evidence found in computers and digital storage media. Kate has become a national leader. A few examples, she helped to create a free downloadable toolkit for law enforcement agencies to help them collect digital evidence. She's made opportunities for student researchers to create new ways to fight human trafficking in the Americas. She's helped investigators who examined disturbing footage from crime scenes or images of crimes against children to deal with post-traumatic stress. And she has also developed a week-long summer camp for girls to help them learn about computer programming and cybersecurity to inspire them to become the next generation of women who fight crime with digital evidence. In our conversation, Kate talks about all these things and more. Let's go back to the beginning with Katherine Siegfried Speller and learn how studying psychology led her to become Purdue's cyber sleuth. Psychology is very much looking at the general perspective of studying the human mind and the way people behave, whereas forensic psychology is looking at the forensic population, so individuals that have committed a crime. That's really what we're looking at here, so trying to understand who commits crime, maybe looking at reasons why somebody might be found insane when they commit a crime. Yeah. And so that evolved into your doctoral work in cyber forensics and psychology. Why did you decide to add the the computer or the digital element to your studies? Yeah, so I was really interested specifically in internet crimes against children and looking at how people use the internet to commit crimes. And so it made sense to look at that forensic psychology and then blend it in with, well, technology. So anonymity, lowering inhibition. So how is it that cyberspace has created this realm for individuals who would normally commit crimes in the real world to transition then and become cyber criminals? Your PhD was in 2011? That's correct. Were you one of the first people in your field to get your particular specialization? How, how long had the specialization in cyber forensics and psychology been around? 
So I would say that it was early. It was sort of this niche that I thought was needed and I was lucky enough that I was in a program where I could kind of create my own area. So I specialized in psychology and then specialized in forensics and was really encouraged to start looking at how these fields overlap. And what I tell my students is uh, never be afraid of creating fish scales because that's where you start um, developing and creating new areas and looking at how things can really overlap. So yeah, I would say this was really early. We didn't really see a lot of cyber psychology or cyber deviance and how um, technology influenced these fields. Certainly with the growth of the internet and it becoming a popular tool in people's homes mm -hmm. with high-speed connections at home instead of dial-up connections, which might have slowed down some people's desire to do things which might be considered cyber deviance. How do you define, you've used this word before, cyber deviance. How do you define that? So deviance would be things that may or may not be illegal. It's things that we tend to see as going against social norms. So a really interesting one would be trolling. I think for the internet subculture, trolling is something that most people have interacted with. Whereas it's not illegal in a lot of countries, whereas in the UK it is, but it's something where we might socially look at that and say it's not okay. You Can know, you that's, define trolling for us? Yeah, absolutely. So trolling is when usually the person doesn't know the other individual, and there's multiple types. It could be um, flaming, which is one where you use obscenity and uh, words to try to upset the other individual to essentially get an arousal out of that person. Another way might be something called rip trolling, so RIP, rest in peace. This would be one where you target memorial pages like Facebook, and you might write comments like, uh, that person deserved to die, or that person, thank God they're in hell now, you know, they're, they're with Satan. And so you can imagine from a parent's perspective how upsetting that would be to have somebody post those types of comments. And again, trolls are doing it to get a reaction out of us. So rip trolling is a great example of one where it's not necessarily illegal, specifically maybe in the United States, but it's one where we would say is deviant. It's something that is countercultural. Most of us would not be okay with somebody posting those types of comments. And so that's really what I'm interested in is not just illegal crimes like child pornography or child sexual exploitation, but also this kind of new emergence of what do we consider to be deviant. And so again, trolling would be a good example of that. So your research is really helping to define the field or define, I suppose, define what you need to study more to understand what's happening. Yeah, that's definitely interesting and in that the field's constantly changing and I'm always learning something new. And uh, recently, some of my work is looking at digital catcalling. So catcalling traditionally in the sense of usually a man saying comments to a female on the street, well, how is that transitioning online to unsolicited uh, messages or pictures that might be sent to somebody? You know, how is what we call catcalling now transformed into digital catcalling? Okay, so I looked this up. Mm -hmm. Forensic science in general. Yeah. My understanding, the field started back in the 13th century in the area of medicine. Uh, as an example, investigators of the day used medical evidence to try to determine cause of death. Yes. How would you define the field of digital forensics or cyber forensics, which of course is your specialty? Yeah, so uh, we're the newest field or subset of forensic science and it started with computer forensics. So essentially looking at how evidence off of a computer can be used to assist the legal system. And that could be um, criminal or civil cases, for example. And so now we're into digital forensics, right? It's not just computers anymore, but mobile phones, the GPS, it could be anything that essentially zeros and ones is what it comes down to. A big area right now is network forensics, for instance. So, so much communication now is on 
on the internet and between networks. And so this is a huge area that we're now exploring. And IoT forensics. So every time you think of a digital device, the question then is what evidence can we pull off of that that could be used in some sort of legal case? So you mentioned legal cases, that's mm -hmm. a good segue. You, a few years ago, were one of the team that helped develop a new unit, a collaboration between Purdue and Computer and Information Technology mm -hmm. with the different law enforcement agencies in the county, Tippecanoe County. So there is now the Tippecanoe County high-tech crime unit yes. at Purdue's Discovery Park. How did that initiative get started? So that initiative was something that started earlier, before me actually. So there were some officers that needed assistance with a case, specifically involving a new form of digital evidence that they previously had not worked. And so they reached out to Dr. Rogers at CIT and started collaborating. And so that really created this kind of new relationship between law enforcement, which Dr. Rogers was previously uh, law enforcement, and academia. And so when I came on, it made more sense for all of these examiners in our county to work from the same centralized unit. So what if instead of them all being spread across the county, we could have a one room, everybody works together, we can share knowledge, share information, have interns easily access the facility since it's at Purdue University, and it worked. I mean, we had great support from our dean here in the Polytechnic, and it's fantastic. So now we have easier access for our students. Law enforcement are able to assist us with data, and then we're also able to assist them with their cases as well. In what ways do you get students involved at the High Tech Crime Unit? Yeah, so there's a course, 420, and so students are required to take that course. It's sort of Digital Forensics 101. And then once they complete that course, and they can apply to be an intern through the High Tech Crime Unit. And so they essentially uh, shadow and work alongside our detectives and law enforcement officers. And it's hands-on experience. They are gonna be going to serve search warrants. They're collecting evidence from the scene. They will be analyzing the evidence. They will get to sit in on evidence that's presented in trial. I mean, they're, they're essentially seeing it from the beginning of the case, hopefully all the way to the end. And that's a really great hands-on experience that they're obtaining. So with the cases that you and the team there help with, since you're working with local law enforcement mm -hmm. agencies, I imagine it's mostly on the, the prosecutorial side of a case yes. that you're looking at evidence to try to confirm a defendant's guilt. But does it ever happen the other way? Do you find evidence that exonerates people? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that's a really important point is that our students are taught that it's not that we are hired guns. And so you bring us in and we're gonna find evidence that supports your, your theory or hypothesis. We're all about finding what does the evidence say happened. And so yes, they are working for the prosecutor, but it sometimes comes down to we can't find anything or the evidence is unclear. And that is uh, what we will stand by then. So it's definitely not one of those cases where we are always for or against somebody. We're neutral parties and it's our job to tell the truth and um, represent the evidence as best as we can. I imagine that has to be very rewarding to discover something that either confirms someone's innocence or guilt in a form of evidence that may not have existed 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people are used to watching television and kind of the CSI effect and everybody wants to see DNA evidence, right? We want to know that this person was at that crime scene based on DNA. Well, 
DNA is not always around. And so I feel like with technology the way it is today, it's down to digital evidence. Digital evidence is involved in every case from drug trafficking to internet crimes against children, to homicide, to robbery, to burglary, I mean everything. So just a couple days ago when I was at the high tech crime unit, we were assisting on a case that involved a shooting. I mean, again, we think digital evidence has to be cyber crimes. That's not the case. Whereas I think DNA, yes, it's important, but I mean, digital evidence, we're up there with them. Mm -hmm. So we've all seen a hundred or a thousand movies and TV shows created yes. over the years uh, from decades past mm -hmm. when you have your detectives going in and, and sweeping for fingerprints and collecting evidence and putting things in plastic evidence bags yes. and so forth. But nowadays, they may find a cell phone, they may find a computer or some other, an Internet of Things device, as you were mentioning earlier. Yes. And they've got to learn how to read that, how to get the evidence off of it. So you have helped to develop a, a toolkit for this for law enforcement agencies, is that right? Yeah, so we developed the FileZar, which is a network forensics toolkit. So essentially the idea was that we have already open source tools, meaning things that are readily available. So anybody in the public could download this tool. and. The idea was that we have all these different tools, but they don't talk to each other. So what if there was a way to make this a toolkit that law enforcement can easily access, use, and it'll help them to work their network forensic cases? And so that's what we did. And we essentially took previously created tools and put them together so that they easily worked. And the reason we did that rather than creating it from scratch was because it was cheaper. And our goal was to be able to create something for law enforcement that they could afford. And that usually means free. <laughs> so we wanted to be able to give them something that they could walk away with and use today versus we're going to license this and you need to pay us five grand every year, which again, technology is expensive and we recognize that. So we were really grateful that we were able to work with these open source tools. Who's using your toolkit so far beyond the law enforcement agencies that are here in town? So the toolkit's open to anybody. We've had over 100 agencies reach out, and so we are still working with Purdue to get that kind of mechanism in place where they're going to be able to utilize the toolkit. But once we're done, it'll be open to anybody who wants to use it. Let's take a different direction here yeah. for a few minutes. I wanted to ask you about another project that you worked on last year, which I'm expecting you're going to tell us, I'm hoping, mm -hmm. that this is something that evolved a kind of a, a passion project. Okay. It's your Fight Human Trafficking in the Americas, brainchild of, of you and your colleague Chad Laux. Yes. What is that? Yeah, so it all started with this idea that a grant came through and it was looking at mitigating um, child labor trafficking. And so I, again, have an interest in crimes against children. Human sex trafficking is one of the areas, although I haven't really dived into it too much. It was always, like you said, something I wanted to pursue. And Dr. Laux looks at food security and the supply chain and also making sure that the products are being made in a way that we as consumers can understand and make sure that we are supporting the products that are fair trade, for instance. And so when I approached him about this idea, maybe we could work together, it, we almost kind of laughed about it and then thought, no, our two worlds do blend. I mean, again, technology touches everything. And so this was something where we started thinking about what other ways can we look at human trafficking? And his idea was that it's a business. Like you make money off of this. That's why people 
engage in this crime. And so what if we started analyzing it from a business process model? And that's exactly what uh, is an engineering perspective that Dr. Lauk specializes in. But in order to do that, you have to have the psychology understanding. You have to have a law enforcement perspective as well. And so again, that's where my kind of expertise comes in. So this is one of those unique ideas where maybe we can better understand a global problem if we start working together and really integrate these different perspectives and backgrounds. So you got a couple hundred students involved from all across campus, not just here in the Polytechnic, although lots of our students got involved too. And I understand that they had basically an all-night study session, something like 17 or 18 hours long, uh, to develop unique solutions Mm -hmm. to the problem. Could you talk more specifically about the problem that you asked them to help solve? Yeah, so we said, how can we mitigate human trafficking? So whether that is reducing the number of people who become victims, maybe it's identifying a victim once they're within the process, how do we identify who the traffickers are? So maybe this is a transportation issue, can we stop them from that perspective of the supply chain if we wanna think of it in that way? And so we really told the students to, to be broad to work together, create diverse teams, and start thinking about what way in which you can make a difference. And they created a one minute video that talked about their innovative solution. It was a design thinking process based on Tech 120, so one of our Polytechnic courses. And it was phenomenal, the ideas and the ranges that they came up with. And like you said, they worked at all hours of the night on this. And it was, I mean, I've always been proud of our Boilermaker students as a former Boilermaker myself. But this was something where we really did rally around an issue that touches so many people. And it was pretty incredible. So the the title of the event was Human Trafficking in the Americas. Yes. I guess before I heard about your event and how many people you got involved, I didn't think it was that big of a problem in the Americas. How much of a problem is it in the nation or even in the Midwest or here in Indiana? Some of the statistics that I can talk about here in Indiana, we had over 100 cases last year of human trafficking, and that's cases that were identified. So who knows how many cases went unidentified or are unknown currently. And that's, again, just here. And it's because of I-65. So I-65 connects Chicago all the way down to Birmingham. Mm -hmm. And then I-20 connects Birmingham to Atlanta. Atlanta is the largest international airport in the United States. So it makes sense that part of the trafficking that's occurring is people flying in and out of Chicago or Atlanta and then being moved throughout the country. Midwest is also known as a major agriculture area. And so it's not just sex trafficking we're talking about, but we're also talking about labor trafficking. So individuals being forced to work in the fields, for example, or being told that if you come here, you'll get fair wage, uh, you'll have living conditions, right? And then it turns out that that's not the situation they end up finding themselves in. Again, that's just our little area here. And so with the Americas, you're also talking about the border. And so again, there's trafficking across the border, but that's not just individuals simply walking across. We're talking about flights, trains, everything that you can think of. And so we really wanted to narrow our scope to um, it being the the Americas, just to give our students a little bit of an area to focus on. Because again, this is a global problem. And so if we open it up to the world, I mean, that's even a bigger problem for them to be thinking about. So at least we could tackle kind of right here in the, the United States and Mexico. Central Bank, yeah. Now, I know that the students came up with some solutions. We're not going to talk about the specifics of their solutions because there's some, well, both proprietary technologies that they've developed, but also that they don't want the bad guys to be able to learn how they're going to catch them. Yes. But am I correct in, in hearing that some of their 
solutions are possibly marketable ideas or possible career-making ideas for these students? Oh yeah, absolutely. And so these were ideas that um, Dr. Lox and I are working to find grant funding for because we feel like these can make a big change. We've talked to some of the government agencies who also agree with us that this technology could work. And so now it's just finding the funding that's available to help bring it to light. Can you tell us something about your current or upcoming research? Yeah, so one of the things that I'm really excited about is I have a graduate student who is working on self-cyberbullying. And so this is kind of a topic a lot of people haven't heard about. So somewhere between 6 and 10% of adolescents admit to posting online anonymously so that they target their own pages and say hurtful things about themselves. So essentially, again, they cyberbully themselves. And the question is why? You know, why are individuals engaging in this type of behavior? And so what we're looking at is the relationship to NSSI, which is this idea of non-suicidal self-injury. So uh, a term people might be familiar with is cutters or self-mutilation. So are individuals that are hurting themselves physically more likely to also hurt themselves online? And that's one of the things we're looking at. And we're also looking at personality characteristics and profiling and specifically borderline personality disorder to see, again, what risk factors put somebody to be more likely to engage in what we call digital self-harm. What kind of opportunities in, in this research will you have for your students? I would imagine that this could be a topic near and dear to some of them. Yes. So this particular student is interested in getting his PhD in clinical psychology and moving on to do clinical work. And so I think for him, he recognizes the importance of social media in the digital world. And so if we're going to be helping individuals deal with maybe in this case, mood disorders or personality disorders, then it's important to also recognize, well, how can technology be involved in this? And so again, if we're looking at individuals that engage in NSSI or self-mutilation, maybe we need to be asking them about their online behaviors as well. Can you tell us about some of your research specifically geared toward law enforcement? Not only am I interested in looking at who are the people that commit crimes and how digital evidence is involved in identifying these people, but I want to know how the evidence impacts law enforcement. So some of the work I've been looking at is uh, from a mental health standpoint. So looking at PTSD, um, also known as STS, so secondary traumatic stress syndrome. This idea that you might have flashbacks, difficulty sleeping. Some individuals end up using poor coping mechanisms like drinking, uh, drug use. But how are they coping with these thousands of images of child sexual exploitation material that they have to see? And in some cases, it's also the audio examiners. So it's not even, we tend to think of images, but what about the people that have to hear? the abuse or the people who, for example, we have all these school shootings. So now they're handling the audio for that and they're hearing hearing these kids. I mean, it's, it's traumatic. And so I think one of the things that I've been really pushing is we need to provide more mental health services for law enforcement, um, including civilians, because not all of them are um, law enforcement officers. A lot of them are contracted and they don't have that support system in place. And these are individuals that nobody Nobody wants to work these cases. I think we all want to make a difference, but nobody said that this is what I thought I would be spending my time doing is listening to school shooting audio or video, right? And so I think, again, we need to be able to provide those services for those contractors and our law enforcement officers. I suspect that as your research progresses, that you might be able to expand the application of it beyond law enforcement. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking specifically of large social media companies 
I know that they pay contractors, like your, your Facebooks of the world, yes. pay contractors to monitor some of what's posted on the site and try to take down things which don't belong. Yes. And that I've read stories about how they get stressed out by having oh, to monitor. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that is their nine to five job is looking at videos and content and taking down the stuff that shouldn't be up there. Some of these contractors are sent out to like the Philippines, for instance. So are we providing support for individuals that are working on this? It's, it's absolutely a problem for law enforcement, for industry, for social media. It's, it's something that we really need to take a, take a hard look at. I always like to ask, especially faculty members who are women, mm -hmm. why you think it's important for girls in grade school or high school to get involved in science, technology, engineering, and math, or the STEM fields. Mm -hmm. But I know that this is important to you because you and Don Lauks have done three instances of the Purdue Cybersecurity Camp, which yes. is a residential camp, and you have dozens and dozens of high school girls come to campus for a week. Yeah. How did you get involved in this? Why are you passionate about it? So I think my passion comes from the fact that I grew up in Indiana. So I grew up about 15 miles away from here on a farm. And I went to a school where I graduated with 60 people in my class. And so I think, again, my background is very different than maybe somebody who comes from the Chicagoland area and has more access. My computer class was typing when I was in school and I realized that was a while ago. But the point is, is that still today, not everybody has access to a course like Computer Science 101 or to programming. And so what if we could provide access for students, particularly in this case, girls, to explore an area that maybe they didn't know they were interested in or didn't know they would be good at. When I pursued psychology, I, again, I wanted to become a cop. I knew I was interested in understanding people and why they essentially do bad things, but I never imagined that it would end up in this kind of cyber virtual world and how much my research would really be no longer in that kind of physical space that I started in. And so I think, again, this is where everything's going is tech. And so it makes sense to start thinking about the different ways in which young girls can start using the STEM field and exploring and even, again, creating fish scales and overlapping some of these unique areas. If you had been born even 20 or 30 years earlier, before okay. the specialty of cyber forensics mm -hmm. really existed. You studied psychology and, mm -hmm. and then forensic psychology. Yeah. So how do you think your career would have evolved if you'd been born 30 years earlier? 30 years earlier. So I, again, I just wanted to be a police officer. I envisioned um, being able to make a difference. I thought it was important to begin to understand who these individuals were that were committing crimes. And I, um, I don't know if this is normal to say, but I enjoy watching and learning about serial killers. So I think it, I, I just was fascinated by who are these people, right? Are they our next door neighbors? Are they your relatives? You know, these are just questions that we still can't answer today. As you'll hear people say, there is no one profile that fits that person that you can pinpoint on a street and say, that person's probably a criminal. But I, uh, that's kind of what I thought I would be able to do. And so I envision I would have been an FBI agent. There is a female, uh, Dale Henman. She's a FBI agent, one of the first female profilers. And I always looked up to her. She had a TV show called Body of Evidence on, I want to say it was Court TV back in the day. And just, I thought I would be her. That's what I, my goal was, was to be somebody like her. I think you are her. Oh. <laughs> I think you're the 2020 yeah. version of her. Well, thanks, because yeah, that, 
That means a lot. I hope so. Maybe I am. Yeah. <laughs> During the last several years, Kate Siegfried Speller has received a number of honors for her work in the field of cyber forensics, including several outstanding research awards from the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, the John P. Lysak Early Career Engagement Award, and the Outstanding Faculty in Learning Award. Several stories about Kate's work are available for you to read on our website, along with a video version of our conversation, go to polytechnic.purdue.edu slash techies today and look for the hot links under episode 12. Next on the podcast, Abby Perez is a 2018 graduate from Purdue Polytechnic's User Experience Design Program who now works at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Growing up, Abby lived in the Philippines, the Netherlands, and in Indiana, and she's learned that despite cultural differences, people have essentially the same goals. At a young age, I had to force myself into this entirely new culture, different language, different people, and that kind of made me interested in psychology because I was really interested in the way, different ways that people live. What I learned from there is even though we have different languages, different ways of doing this, we all essentially have the same goal at the end, which is to be happy, maybe have a family, but we are all, we're not against each other. We just simply live differently. And I think that's also how I got into user experience design. We want to empathize. We want to understand human emotions and how we work. It's not just, oh, how do we sell this product? It's how can this help you with your daily life? My conversation with Abby Perez is coming soon. Techies Today is produced at Purdue University in Purdue Polytechnic's Office of Marketing Communications. Please follow Purdue Polytechnic on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at TechPurdue. The podcast is on Twitter and Instagram at Techies Today. Contact us by email to techiestoday at purdue.edu. Our executive producer is Melissa Templeton. I'm John O, the podcast's editor and producer. Thanks for listening. That's what's happening for Techies Today.